Welcome to the wheelhouse. On a scale of 1 to 10, he's going to hit a 10 on every nice guy mark until he gets out on the mound. And then he's going to chew you up, and he doesn't really let you go. Starring Jerry DePoto. And Jerry DePoto to the plate with a 2-2 pitch to Alex. Swing and a miss. He struck him out on the fastball. With Aaron Goldsmith. To see what he's done this year, Jerry to just despise walking guys even more than he did last year, to work the edges of the plate better than any starting pitcher, maybe better than any pitcher, period, in Major League Baseball. And Gary Hill Jr. That's Aaron's only way of scouting. He doesn't care about anything else. (laughs) (laughs) How they look coming off the bus. Man, oh man. It's time for the wheelhouse. Here's Aaron. It is that time for the Wheelhouse Podcast. Aaron Goldsmith, Gary Hill, and Jerry DePoto. And Jerry, they've started to hit. It's all happening, Jerry. It's quietly, it's been going on for a while. It was percolating. You know, it was like a good pot of coffee. It takes a while. But, you know, it's a, there's, we've done enough over the course of the, the season at large, and really since the middle of May, where, where we found little ways to start getting closer to maximizing the that, you know, our best team. And and now you're seeing it. it. It started with seeing more pitches, starting to take our walks a little more, which began, you know, back in May. And 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 it started to, to roll with us. And, and now that the weather's warm and, and our our dude dudes started to be dudes, you know, it's a they're driving the machine. And and our role players really started to do the things that they do. And, you know, now I think really one through nine most nights were clicking and you know, while JP and Gino and Julio have clearly been, you know, the, the big drivers in this push over the last six weeks, you know, you could also point to Tom Murphy and Dylan Moore and Cal Raleigh and the guys who probably haven't gotten as much notoriety in, in recent weeks and, and really tip the cap to what those guys have done because they've been awesome. Because that's the, that's the really interesting thing about where the Mariners are offensively right now is that – it's not like they went from this average team offensively, which is what they have been basically all season until July, to the best offense in baseball. They've moved from average to like top 10-ish, right? Like ninth or 12th in so many different categories. And with that pitching, ninth or 10th in most offensive categories wins you a ton of games at this level. And it, I mean, sadly, that's kind of what we were thinking at the start. <laughs> you know, right. Ninth or 12th was, you know, 19th and 20th for for a little while there and and you know where where I'm really excited about what's happening here is that you know if you look at at the normalized stuff if you look at WRC plus I think since the first of July only Texas is better in the American League than we've been Uh, you know you got a 118 WRC plus since July 1st if you track it back to the middle of May I, I think we're 107 which is good for like eighth or ninth in the league and not in the American League in Major League Baseball in that time and to your point as well as we pitch as consistent as we've been out of the bullpen, if our offense, you know, performs as a top 10 offense, even at the back end of the top 10, that makes us a pretty threatening team night in and night out. And you're seeing it right now. You know, a big part of that and this offense right now, J.P. Crawford is having the best offensive season, the best season of his career. You look at uh, qualified shortstops, he's behind just Bo Bichette in WRC+. With all the talent, all the talented shortstops in baseball, he's right there. What are you seeing from J.P. this year? The most consistent 
day-to-day approach of his career. And it's not just in the batter's box. It's what he's doing in his preparation. It's how he managed his offseason. He's maintained his strength, his body weight. You know, the season's tough on a shortstop who's playing every day. And, you know, JP is a thin, wiry athlete, you know, by nature. You know, we, we've, I think this year, and it's it sounds strange to say about a guy who's now in his late 20s in the prime of his career, JP really grew into himself this year. You know, we're seeing a bigger, stronger, you know, more sustainable version of him. And, you know, the way he's taking care of himself in the training room, in the weight room, in the dining room, that it's it's all making a huge difference. And we've, in years past, seen, you know, gaps or peaks and valleys for JP. He's been on the peak, and he's kind of stayed there. And... You know, and he did it at a time when he was elevated from the bottom of the lineup to the top spot when Julio was really struggling for a period there. JP took it and ran with it, and it has been incredibly consistent from that day moving forward. And um, I'm thrilled at, at what he's done. I'm thrilled for him uh, that, that he found the, the recipe to, to turn him into this version of himself because, you know, when he was a first-round draft pick out of high school and, and when he dreamed of what it was going to be like when he's playing for, you know, a playoff-quality team in the big leagues, playing shortstop every day, I'm pretty sure this was the version of his offensive self that he probably thought of when, when he saw that. Hitting the leadoff homers, you know, the, the dramatic hits to, to win games or move the game along. And, uh, and, and I'm thrilled for him that it's happening because he's – he, as I've said before, when JP goes, we go, and and right now he's going. We we know about the time that he put in at driveline over the offseason. He's spoken about this, and he's obviously making such better quality of contact this year. He's hitting the ball so much harder. When you have a player, especially a really key player like JP, go into um, another coach's hands during the offseason, like he did with driveline, how much of that are you or Jared DeHart or whomever how much of that are you monitoring? Does he just show up in spring training and you just see the, the goods that have been baked in the oven? How does that whole thing work? Because it obviously has paid huge dividends. You know, I'll cite some players from our past. You know, first you just trust your players and, and you recognize that they're grown men and, and they have choices and, and there are third parties out there that do a very good job. Fortunately for us, we're in town. We know the people at Driveline very well and, and we've developed a, a trust with the, the folks at Driveline. And we will, in some way, we will send our players their way, which is, you know, kind of how it, it took shape with, with JP. And we suggested it as an alternative. And, you know, JD, Carson Vitale were there on the front end of it. And uh, it, just to, to get the ball rolling and create a comfort for JP and then just stepped out of the way. And, you know, that, that I think is as much a, a level of trust in JP as it is in the people over at Driveline. We think they do a wonderful job. And, you know, if I had first round talent as a hitter I think I'd probably go over there and say hey teach me how to be an all-star and uh, they, they do they do a wonderful job and and the things that they focus on are generally consistent with the things that we count to be important and I, I think that makes for a nice marriage and while we're not part of the same organization we do have a lot of the same philosophies so we felt pretty confident that that JP would thrive in that scenario can you identify a difference between Julio from a roughly opening day till the final day of June and from Julio July 1st until present day where he reaches base approximately every game? 
I like this version. You know? <laughs> uh, we've seen this version before. We saw it for a good chunk of last year. We saw it for a period, those first couple of weeks of the season, you know, and, and then, you know, in more bits and pieces throughout the first half. I, and this is, is going to sound like an easy one. I, I think the pressure of having the all-star game in your hometown, of being, you know, the the the, the ambassador of, of the league's efforts at the all-star game, it, that's a lot for for any player it's probably it's probably especially a lot for a, a 22 year old in his second major league season you know with so much expectation on him like Julio came into the season with and you know my sense was after the the home run derby after he played in his second all-star game after he slept for four straight days to try to recover from what I'm sure was an exhausting you know run he he kind of morphed back into the 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 version of Julio that we saw for so much of, of his time here with the Mariners and even through his minor league career. He he was softer in the batter's box. He was more handsy as a hitter and not as jumpy as we saw him, you know, oftentimes in the first half. He was letting it come to him. His pitch, his swing decisions became much, much better. You know, he started laying off the ball down and away, the ball up and over and much more consistently than he had in that first half. And and you know it, it all came together for him. And 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 when you're making good swing decisions and you're calmer in the box, you know, physically and mentally, and you have his explosive tools, good things are going to happen. And we're seeing good things. And you know he's again performing like one of the the real dynamic players in the game on all sides. And it's funny that you bring that up because there's no way to measure this. But as we watch the first half play out, and it's coming from a good place. Like when you watch Julio, he would come up in a big spot, a couple guys aboard, you could almost see the want to in the moment, which as we all know in baseball, like the, the more you want it, the harder you try, sometimes the worse it can be. And now you see an offense where there's a bunch of guys cooking at the same time. How much psychology is there when you're talking about a lineup where you have a bunch of guys hitting well at the same time, as opposed to a lineup that's not performing up to expectations and maybe guys trying too hard. How much is at play in this situation? I'm going to be the guy yeah. type of, and, yeah. and, or the team needs me to be the guy. Yes. It's, you know, the, the, the minute somebody sits down with you and, and says, I, we just expected so much more of you. Oh my God! There's, <laughs> well, we, we've talked to Kerry about that quite a few times. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I, people say that to me all the time. <laughs> it is, you know, I'll go back to like Bull Durham, Kevin Costner, when he's talking to, to Tim Robbins, you know, Nuclealouche, and, and he said, you know, hold it like an egg. You know, that's baseball. If you grip it too hard, if you grind that bat too tight, if you're thinking too much when you get in the box, you know, the most cerebral players in the game, it happens naturally for them. You know, we've got a couple of guys with incredibly high baseball IQ. It They're not in the batter's box burning. It just comes naturally to them. And, you know, the minute you start thinking about too much, it's it really weighs you down. You've got to be, you know, reactive and, and, and I and I I think one of the things that reminds me of this is that if I go back in time, and I've always the the dominate the strike zone mantra, we we bang it, and it's something we really drive in player development, and even here at the big league level, you've all heard me hammer away at it. I could go back and talk to to players who played in the '60s, the '70s, the '80s, the '90s, who dominated the strike zone, and they have no idea that they did it. They, did, they, they didn't know that that was part of their thing. You know, oh, you can't teach that. 
you did this. You did this for 15 years. You know, oh, no, you got to go up there. You're hunting fastballs. You're going to go hit. You know, best one you get it might be the first one. How did you walk 14% of the time and you punched out 11% of the time? You know, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's a mentality, and I'm not always sure that it's easy. But if the easiest thing to do in the game is get in your way by trying too hard to be what everybody needs instead of just going, relaxing, and playing your game and letting your skills hunt. You know, well, Gary, when I hear you bring that up, the, the first thing I thought of, and this is extreme because the worst hitter for the Braves this year is like a – 89 WRC plus, <laughs> <laughs> right? But like when we saw the Braves earlier and we've caught them on TVs periodically since then, it's just like the most carefree lineup in baseball because, right, they've all been rolling all season long. And it's like if Acuna doesn't get on, then Olsen will get on. And if he doesn't get on, then Murphy will get on. And now that the Mariners are running hot, like we're seeing a, a version of that in their own way. And obviously we saw that last year for a lot of the back half of the season, but it is kind of a, it's a chicken or the egg thing, right? Right. See, I think, you know, I think back to, to the, the best versions of, of our team and it could be for three weeks at a time. It could be for three months at a time. The best teams that I've ever been associated with. It is like a different hero every day. And you, and you could go through the best portions of your season like we're on a six-week heater right now. We're the best team in Major League Baseball since the first of July, and if you go if you go down and 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 think through, we've won 23 games since the first of July. Think through the heroes in those games. It's sometimes Julio. It's oftentimes been JP. It's been Gino, who's on a heater of his own. It's been Tom Murphy. It's been Mike Ford. It's been Dylan Moore. It's a, there's, there's virtually no player on our field. If you spin around the field long enough, you'll say, wow, it was, it was him today. And when you've got that going on, that diff, you know, somebody new every day when they believe in each other, when it is truly a conga line, that's when it happens for teams. When it's one guy bombing away in the middle of a lineup, that team's destined to be a loser. And, and, you know, you need guys to get on base. You need guys to set the table. You need guys to have the mentality, I'm just going to move the lineup. And, you know, if you go up trying to hit a three-run homer with nobody on base, you look a lot like we looked any one of the first six weeks of the season. You know, and, and since then, we've we've kind of found ourselves. And not always, you know, we had a rough one in June. But for the most part, you know, it's we have found ourselves offensively. We started seeing our pitches. We still strike out too much. But the strikeouts, they don't bother you so much when you're not doing the other thing. And, uh, and you start playing to your skill set. Well, when I think about all those different guys who helped win games recently, uh, Cade Marlowe certainly comes to mind with his uh, go-ahead ninth-inning grand slam. Scott was really complimentary of Cade well before the Grand Slam and just the quality of the at-bat. And, and, hey, who knows what Cade Marlowe is going to turn out to be in his Mariners career or his big league career. But I have to imagine, Jerry, for a guy to fill in in kind of extreme circumstances, right, when, when Kelnick went on the injured list, uh, he has, I, I feel, really proven a fair amount in a short period of time and has clearly been uh, an answer in some nights for the Mariners. First of all, like that that moment, and there were others. There was a huge pinch hit off a left-hander where he ground through and or I guess grinded through an at bat and and fished one back through the middle against the Red Sox and in an at bat that really wasn't favorable in, in its matchup. Cade, through his time with us, has been incredibly productive as a minor league player. Power, speed, plays good defense, can play all three spots. He's really one of our best base runners organizationally, and he has been prone to. 
he's he's fine, he's fine, he's fine. Oh my gosh, he's the best player in the world right now. <laughs> and, and it's a and Cade has had those runs, and those runs have sometimes lasted as long as three months, where he just gets on these long heaters, and and it's you can't get him out. And we saw it starting to take shape. He came out of of spring training banged up. I think he had an oblique that that slowed him down. He didn't start until late. Once he got out of the shoot, he got out slowly. He was striking out a little bit too much. And then, you know, about a month before his his call-up, he, he got on his heater. And, and as soon as it started happening, with our general thought in-house was we got to find a way to get him on our team because when this happens in Cade world, you know, he generally stays here for quite some time. And and that's really carried over. He's, he's a smart player. Um, I think the answer to the question, what is Cade going to be, Cade's going to be whatever his skills will allow him to be because his focus, his preparation, his care to, you know, the it's the all of it, the effort level, it's top of the scale. His makeup, his, his, his quality as a teammate. I, I loved the, the, the Grand Slam for many reasons <laughs> off of Estevez the other night. But, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about it is, you know, Cade smiled on the field, which isn't really, a, you know, Cade smiles only slightly more than Scott Service. So it's a, <laughs> you know, he's, he's a wonderful guy. There's no one in our group that's any more in tune with what they do and how they do it. And he's got power. He's got speed. He's, you know, it's a, he'll always have some advantage versus righties versus as opposed to the left-hand pitcher. But in, in general, he's even combated those lefties since he's been in the big leagues and, and done really good things, and it was a boost to us when we needed it. Well, he's, he's a true three-tool player. Great name, great face, really great caps. I mean, Jerry, I don't know why he wasn't here sooner. Okay. <laughs> what are we doing, we had, Jerry? We had to wait for the heater. <laughs> you know, I think in, in general, I, Cade has always been on our radar. Obviously a 40-man roster player. I think in 2022, he was our minor league, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. minor league hitter of the year award winner. He's, I think, the only minor league player in 2021 and 22 to have posted back-to-back 20 homer, 20 steal, 100 RBI seasons. He's done really positive things as a later round draft pick who really was kind of overlooked on draft day, University of West Georgia, which is not teeming with, with a lot of the all-time greats in our game. But, you know, he's since the day he entered our organization, he has done nothing but exhibit tools to play in the big leagues, the professionalism, the, to, to be a leader in a clubhouse and on a field and the focus when he's on the field, he never throws a pitch away. And, you know, Jim told me once told me, he said, you know, the, what's the key to being a great hitter? He said, never throw a pitch away, never take one off. And you can see a lot of the, the great, great hitters when they gave a pitch away or when they took one off. You'll see it. That'll, that'll be when you get the slap on the, the hip or the slap on the thigh. And, and it's not always because they let themselves drift out. It's, you know, they know they let one go. We talked about the offense, but the pitching has been there all season long. And I feel like it could get kind of taken for granted in ways because teams don't lose a Robbie Ray. Teams don't lose a Marco Gonzalez and essentially be fine. But you've brought up Wu and Miller to go along with Kirby and Gilbert, and we're taping this in front of Hancock's Major League debut. I mean, that's essentially a homegrown rotation, all drafted within the last couple of years, essentially. When people ask, what is working so well 
What is what do you say to that to that question? Because obviously something is working really well to see the results that we're seeing. I will say this that that you know while Brian Wu is a slightly different story uh, in in kind of his his track. You know, Emerson, who will make his debut tonight, George Kirby, Logan Gilbert. They, these guys were awesome the, the day we drafted them, you know, and, and we didn't have to turn too many dials. You know, with George, we just said, there's the mound, you know, and, and uh, you know, a, along the way, his velocity really increased. Our pitching people did a wonderful job in, in helping him better understand how to sequence. Uh, Logan was truly tailor-made for the Mariners, and, and this was identified as a collegian. You know, I, I think one of the first things in, in the presentation about Logan Gilbert among our scouts was, you know, this, it, this guy is wired to be a Mariner simply because of how we do it, the, you know, the way our pitching programs work, our pitching strategists, and, and if there's a commonality among all those guys, it's that they all trusted the process that was employed, starting with with Max Weiner, you know, running through their individual pitching coaches, guys like Matt Pierpont and Alone Leichman, and ultimately Pete Woodworth and Trent Blank, and they trusted what was coming out, and and they ran into a number of catchers along the way who believed in that program and further drove drove it a little bit further. But you know, they're coming through the door with real talent, and all we have to figure out how to do is teach them how to refine the way they use those tools. And in some cases, if we can help them improve them. Um, and, and I don't know that that makes us wildly different than any other pitching program. We just seem to have found some success in doing it. And, and in order to do it, you have to have pitchers like they are with talent. But the, the key ingredient is belief, trust. You know, you have to trust in each other because the missing ingredient with many other clubs might be just that, that, that they have not established that, that trust. And I'll give you a little quick one. We, we recently acquired a player, pitcher, joining our organization for the first time uh, and made the phone call to, to welcome him to the club and talk to him about some of the things that we had already identified that we, that we might be able to, to do with him. And, and his response was, oh, I heard you guys are awesome with the pitching thing. I can't wait to get there. <laughs> it's a, and and, I, and I, that's a credit to, to Trent and Woody. It's a credit to Max down at the minor league levels, who you know now unfortunately is, is, has moved on to Texas A&M, to Pierpont, and, and, and really to our pitchers who have succeeded in serving as the model that other pitchers around the league, like when we're calling the next version of, of our, you know, fun bullpen guys that we signed to minor league deals and then they turn out to be you know real contributors for us and when we call that guy we don't have to call a second time you know they're very interested because they've watched what's happened with a lot of guys around them it's a little pressure each and every time a new arm comes up and debuts <laughs> i mean uh, i guess maybe logan started this trend of uh, mariners draft picks to come up it seems like of course to uh, come up and uh, like sizzle right away essentially but we are now in the Emerson Hancock era of Mariners baseball. Obviously, a, a highly touted prospect, a high first-round draft pick for you guys. Can you kind of walk us through the, the big-picture evolution on how Emerson got to being taken in the first round of the Mariners to now debuting for the Ems? Yeah, you know, we, we went in. I, I will say this, and I, and I think we talked about it even at that time. There has never, and I hope there will never be, another draft like the 2020 draft. Everything was truncated. You were looking at five starts for a college pitcher. You were looking at some high school players that didn't get to play at all. Uh, and, and now you're just going off of summer follows from the year before when they were 16 or 17 years old. And, 
and just not a whole lot of information to go on. And, and in today's draft and developed market, that's not common to have that little information. One of the players going into that draft who you did have a lot of information about was Emerson Hancock. He was, you know, widely regarded as one of the best prospects going into the draft season. I, I think that year started, he was widely considered the favorite to go 1-1, you know, first overall in that draft. Six foot five, he, he looks like, you know, that the, he's got something that I think will appeal to Goldie. Uh, oh, yeah. Which is, he looks like they look. He does. It, it, he's got a great name yep. as well. It's a, he's got he's got the big league name. He's got the big league physique. He's got the big league heater. It's a it all works. And ultimately for us, we got into his draft year, and and he had a couple of physical setbacks in in college, and none of which were structural but in nature. And we felt pretty good with. I think it cost him a start or two at the end of his his sophomore year, and carried into his junior year. And he didn't have enough time. To, to effectively you know, put the concerns to rest. And, you know, as a result, he fell to the sixth pick. We were able to, to pick him up. And, you know, and then his entry into pro ball was at Tacoma at the alt site where he got to throw one inning at the very end. And, you know, we were tantalized by seeing 96, 97 with a good changeup. And Emerson, we've talked about it openly. Emerson, you know, struggled with the transition into pro ball from a – pitching every fifth day standpoint to little knickknack type of setback injuries that that really bothered him and, and he couldn't get back on the field but again nothing structural that that would you know keep him out for lengths of time just missing starts or two weeks here four weeks there and along the way we're trying to at that time we're a fledgling pitching program you know remember he joins us in in june of 21 or 20 and we are now not even a year into our rebuild program and our pitching programs are finally starting to take off. You know, we're, we're two years out from drafting Logan Gilbert, a year out from drafting George Kirby, you know, which was the start of this developmental process for us. And when Emerson came on board, something that we really excelled at was taking guys who could ride four-seam fastballs up in the zone and then tunnel their breaking stuff uh, and, and helping them shape their breaking balls to, to better pair with that riding fastball. We had done very well with that, including with guys like Logan and George. Uh, we saw the potential to do that with Emerson, and he got into our system, and that wasn't what he was comfortable doing. You know, he was primarily a two-seam down in the zone, more of a sinker baller type of pitcher at the University of Georgia. And, you know, so think about it as you are an All-American in college. You're you're supposed to go 1-1 in your draft. You ultimately go sixth. You know, you come into pro ball, and somebody tells you, we want to change the way you use your stuff. And, you know, it was probably a little bold on our part, and – you know, in doing so, I think we we changed his mentality and how he was going about pitching. And, and we went through this for, I'd say, about his first 50 innings or so as a pro. And, you know, and he pitched quite well, you know. And there was nothing exceptional about his performance, nothing that jumped off the page. But it was good across the board. And But now you're waiting for great to happen. And, you know, he finally came to us at, at the tail end of that 2021 season and he said you know i i really feel much more comfortable doing it my way and uh you know the 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 two seamer is is 
how I prefer it. I, I don't like where I'm at in terms of my delivery. And, you know, and, and then we worked with them. We, we acknowledged the fact that there was probably some, something better. And, and we said, do it your way. And, you know, we'll, we'll wait until the end of spring training and then we'll reassess and we'll, we'll kind of get together on what to do from here. And he went out and did it his way and he looked great. Uh, he looked comfortable and he came into spring training that year and everything was up. His fastball velocity was up. His his pitch qualities were up, you know. And and again, he had a little bit of a setback. I think at that time it was a, a trap issue, shut down very briefly coming out of spring that year and stayed down in Arizona. And during that during that time, we found like the the happy medium for Emerson. And you know, credit to Matt Pierpont who spent a ton of time with them during his time in Arkansas, and you know, which feels like a career in Arkansas, but he pitched incredibly well this year and you know had a real knack for having one blow up outing around a lot of dominant outings and i think for the most part over the last six weeks it's been a lot of the dominant he's he's really learned his repertoire from a pitch menu standpoint he has as wide a menu as anybody we've that's come through our system you know with accepting maybe george uh, who throws every pitch in the book but Emerson's got a fastball, curveball, slider, and change. He's got a it's the the curveball not oft used. He he does throw his slider a little harder, you know, more of a cutter now, and and he's got more of a sweepy breaking ball that that'll add to the mix from time to time. He's got a two seamer and a four seamer. So you know, part of our meter meet in the middle is he's doing a little bit of of the the old Mariner thing and a little bit of the old Emerson thing, and it created, you know, a unique. Uh, what I think is diverse pitch mix that I'm I I believe is ready to 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 roll at the major league level. He's confident. He's throwing extremely well. He's a wonderful guy. And and I, you know credit to to Scott Hunter, our scouting group, and and everyone who's taken a part in it. Emerson, George, Logan, the the, the guys, Brian Wu, Bryce Miller. The quality of the arms that they have given us to work with is phenomenal, but the quality of the people attached to it is even better. Just a, just a wonderful group of guys, and I think they like being together. Uh, you know, when Emerson shows up, he's not like the kid who's coming from Double A that walks into the clubhouse sheepishly on day one. He comes in, and he says, "Oh, there's my boys." <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I mean, there's the rest of the rotation. That's right. <laughs> well, we're excited. We can't wait. Jerry, I have a uh, a topical stump, JD. Oh. I would like you to tell me who has thrown the most innings in San Diego Padres history. Oh, wow. There's a, oh. Not an illustrious. That's the whole point, yeah, Jerry. Not an illustrious now, history. If this helps you at all, even mildly, he also has the most starts, as you would probably imagine. I would have, had, I would have guessed that. Um, who has thrown the most innings in San Diego Padres history? This is a great question. It's an it's so, awesome it's question. It's so simple, and it's like, wait, what? There, there's a guy that jumps to mind for me immediately, which it can't be it. Otherwise, you wouldn't ask this question. So there's, I have a sneaky. I have the same reaction yeah. to this, and I'm going to try to avoid it. I don't want to. I don't want to run into my own. I don't want to make this harder yeah. than it has to be. The, yes, that's the trick. Do you have a? Do you have a guess? Oh wow, J Jerry, this is unprecedented. Everyone, Jerry's. Potentially asking for a lifeline. I am, I am gonna. I'm gonna go with what I think is the obvious one to me. You may not agree. I'm gonna go with Andy Bennis. Oh. No, but oh. Andy is. Um, he is fifth. Dang. He, he did reach the top five. Wow. Yeah, but 
There are four with more. Four with more than Andy Bennis. Um, all right. I'm going to reroute. I'm going to go with Andy Ashby. No, he is sixth. Oh, damn. <laughs> if I asked you fifth and sixth in Padres history, <laughs> you're the man. <laughs> could it be? Could it be? Could it be Randy Jones? Randy Jones. Oh, nicely Jerry. done. There's nicely done. I, I was also thinking Jake Peavy. Yeah, yeah. Dude, he's the one that. that yeah. But I was like, that can't, Jake Peavy can't be. Yeah, Peavy. Uh, he just went into the Padres Hall of Fame. Uh, fourth, fourth most Peavy. Where's Eric Shaw on the list? We, <laughs> tell me now. Tell me now. Yeah. Where is Eric Shaw? He's uh, actually number two. That would have been my. That was my. That's a sneaky good guess. That was my Eric Shaw. Was my. Seated the 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 all-time hit leader hit to Pete Rose. Oh, very nice. nice. Look how many other trivia questions you've answered already that I have. Except asked. for the one that you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> That's you, right. Hey, I think three guesses is within the realm of. Uh, no, of, it's it's, a, it's the grace period. I, I, I will say it's it's not a win. It's not a win. Okay. I'm not counting this as a win. Okay. You know. Hey, if we're if we're talking about Padres history, I assume you have reference up. I do. Home run leaders in Padres history. That's uh, the fun one. I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with Nate Colbert. Yes, that's it. Wow, that's Nate Colbert. You should have asked you me want, this question. Yeah. Three, three, two, one. Jerry. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy, who knew the Padres had so much niche, interesting trivia that no one ever would think of? It's the brown uniforms. It's it must be. Are you pro brown uniforms? Jerry? You know, I am mostly because when I see the Padres brown uniform, and I think back, I, I think it was the the All Star Game, 1978. Okay. So. Ten-year-old Jerry is is tuning in for for the the All-Star game that was led off. The only other All-Star game led off with a triple. I think was by Rod Crew. Really, uh, oh, led the game great. off with a triple, and and uh, it was played in San Diego. And at that time, as a as a young lad, you wouldn't. I wasn't always allowed or 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 awake. To see the Padres when you know the Mets were playing oh, sure. in in San Diego, so your experience seeing the Padres and watching guys like Dave Winfield, we didn't have you know at that time access to MLB Network or you you had, you had one channel to watch your your game on, and you got three games to see those guys play, and and I always thought it was cool because they had such an outlandish look the yeah. same way with the Astros you know you know when they yes. were wearing their rainbow Sunrise, unis yeah. and you're, th you're thinking that's weird you know look at that you know <laughs> boy, J.R. Richard throws hard yeah, boy. Uh, yes. look at his hands <laughs> so you liked it just for the uh, pure like the, just how different they were they're the yeah. Padres yeah. without a doubt yeah. yeah I get that and it's a, there's and I can tell you having again knowing Randy Jones, what Randy Jones looked like when he came over to the Mets, which is was his destination after yes. uh, the the pods. There's he was a Cy Young Award winner, a 20 game winner, and he's coming over. And I, you know, I'm waiting for him to just unleash the the hairy stuff that is associated with that because I never saw him pitch. You know, that was not Randy Jones. <laughs> yeah. Pure junk ball, right? Yeah, just just you know, features the soft stuff in and out, change ups, curveballs. You know, Ephus pitches, make it up as you go along. You know, he had the like the the ultimate touch and feel guy. Yeah, uh, Saber has a story on here where Pete Rose apparently was so frustrated at one point, he was 4 for 29, that he decided to hit from the other side of the plate against him. Like, is that actually possible? Would, is, would a big league hitter have done that? Oh, yeah. This is 1993. We're playing at Yankee Stadium. I'm with Cleveland at the time. And uh, we are in the midst of Jim Abbott's unbelievable no-hitter. 
you know, which is just a, one of, to me, one of the, the most awesome things I saw in my, my career. And, uh, and I am, you know, I'm a couple months into my major league career and I'm, I'm watching, you know, what I think is this like historic moment, you know, uh, and Carlos Baerga, who was a switch hitter and, and had encountered Jim Abbott's cutter over and over and over uh, as a right-hand hitter, decided in that game he was just going to hit left-handed and and turned around and, and took his ABs left-handed because he, he would prefer the ball going away from him than, than running wow. in on him. So, you yeah. know, it's a little nuance from from his no-hitter is that Carlos Baerga went out. and I, I want to say that Carlos might have made the last out, like hit a ground ball to shortstop, hitting left-handed off Jim Abbott's cutter. So it didn't work. It didn't, no. It's, <laughs> as a matter of fact, it didn't work to the highest possible <laughs> degree. <laughs> but yeah, credit for trying. You yeah, know. absolutely. Well, Jared, as always, man, this has been a lot of fun. We appreciate you joining us. You got it, guys.